please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 17 through 20 today. Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 17. I'll read through to verse 20. The Lord Jesus says this in Matthew 17 through 25, 17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Bow your heads with me as we pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word and the gift of your spirit, two precious gifts you've given to us as your people. We pray that your word and spirit will work in concert today to edify your people and convert sinners to faith in Jesus Christ. May you be glorified and honored in all that's said and done. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, that is... In the Old Testament, it doesn't apply to us. Is something that I've heard time and time again. If I, if I had a dollar for every time I heard something like that or to that effect, I'd have a lot of money. Um, it's often heard coming from the lips of contemporary believers, this idea that it's in the Old Testament, so it doesn't apply. And Jesus, when he preached the Sermon on the Mount, which our passage is part of. He included this portion about the law uh, because of the high regard the Jews had for the law, for the Old Testament scriptures. In case they misunderstood his ministry as undermining the Old Testament. We have the opposite problem, I think, in our contemporary time. That is, we have a low regard for the Old Testament scriptures. I think Jesus' message here is a rebuke to contemporary Christians who have that kind of attitude towards God's law. Um, Sadly, uh, a great many Christians dismiss dismiss three-fourths of God's word with words as I suggested at the beginning, or you, you probably have all heard the most recent iteration of this when Andy Stanley proclaims that we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. This is just another way of undermining the Old Testament. Those who who want to be in open and firming churches, embracing Christians being gay and saying it's okay, will say things like, Jesus never said anything about gay marriage. Ignoring everything the Old Testament ever said about it and pitting Jesus against the 
Old Testament scriptures as if Jesus disagrees with the Old Testament. There's Because the devil is wily, he has many wiles to trick God's people and, and to undermine God's word. There's a myriad of ways to undermine the Old Testament scriptures. And they do the same with the new as well. You know, especially when, when we hear talk about whether women can preach, which seems to be all the topic now, again. Um, you'll hear people say, well, Jesus, Jesus interacted with all these women, and then someone will quote from the Apostle Paul and say, well, that's just Paul, that's not Jesus. As if, again, they're somehow in conflict with one another. The devil wants to undermine the scriptures, whether it's the scriptures of the Old Testament or scriptures of the New Testament. Our contemporary age, uh, following the spirit of the devil, also wants to undermine the Old Testament. Jesus will have none of that. And I think this is what he's trying to convey to us today, that the Old Testament is relevant. The Old Testament is useful. In fact, 2 Timothy 3.16 says all scripture is God-breathed and useful or profitable. And then he lists some of the uses of the Bible. All of the Bible is useful. All of the Bible continues to be relevant. And this, I think, is what you'll see from this passage as we unfold it today. So we're going to look at three main points today. Number one, Jesus teaches that the Old Testament scriptures are useful because they point to him. So they point to Jesus Christ. That's what makes the Old Testament scriptures one of the things that makes them useful. Secondly, we'll look at the fact that the Old Testament scriptures are the indestructible word of God. And then finally, the Old Testament scriptures point to a great righteousness. Let's look again at verse 17 to understand our first point. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus is emphatic here twice in this one in this one verse, in this one sentence, he says, I did not come to abolish them. I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. Now the question arises, of course, what the, what is the law and the prophets? The, the law and the prophets is simply a way that Jewish people then and even now refer to the Old Testament scriptures. The law and the prophets refers then to the five books of Moses and the books of the prophets who followed them. Jewish People today don't call the Bible, their Bible, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, they call it the Tanakh, T-N-K. And I'll, I'm probably murdering the Hebrew here, but it's Torah, Nabim, and Ketabim. It means the law, the prophets, and the writings. They continue to this day to refer God's word in the same way as they refer to it here in the Old Testament. Jesus, when he says, I've, come to, I've not come to abolish the law or the prophets, means he's not coming to undermine or destroy or to do away with the Old Testament scriptures. 
The word destroy here literally means to dismantle a building with the result the building is done away with. So Jesus' intention in his preaching and teaching, Jesus' intention in his ministry is not to tear up the Old Testament, throw it in the garbage, and start a brand new building. What this means is there is some continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, Christian brothers and sisters disagree about the degree of continuity between the Old Testament and New Testament. But what Jesus is teaching here assumes some kind of continuity. There's The Old Testament continues to have relevance. The Old Testament continues to have use even for New Testament believers today is what Jesus' point is. So he didn't come to destroy the Old Testament scriptures, but Jesus also says positively, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So negatively, he's not going to destroy them. Positively, he came to fulfill the Old Testament scriptures. Now, it's pretty easy to understand one when it comes to the prophecies of the Old Testament. And there are many prophecies, predictions about who the Messiah was going to be and the things he was going to do. For example, Matthew uh, 1, 22 through 23, it quotes Isaiah predicting that the Messiah was going to be born of a virgin and he would be called Emmanuel, that is God, with us. It's easy to see. Uh, Isaiah predicted this, and then in first in zero A.D., Jesus was born to the Virgin Mary, and He is God with us. We see it's an easy one-to-one correspondence. Isaiah predicted it, and we see it exactly in the life of Jesus. And there are many of these, and certainly this is one of the ideas that Jesus has when He says He came to fulfill them. All the promises, all the predictions that the prophets made about the Messiah are are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But it's more than this easy kind of prediction that we understand. Because what does it then mean to uh, fulfill the law or the books of Moses? Yes, there are some prophecies there, but I think we need to understand unpack this a little more. Don Carson says in his commentary on this passage, it is that it means it is the history of the Jews which points forward to Christ, but not in any easy predictive sense. One example of this is that at the beginning of Matthew, Jesus is tempted. He's he's brought into the wilderness and he's and he's hungry, hasn't eaten in 40 days. This is, this is a fulfillment of the Israelites wandering in the wilderness for 40 days and food being provided, or 40 years, food being provided for them in the wilderness. So it's not, a, it's not that they're predicting the Messiah is going to do this and then he does that. We see these, these foreshadows, these glimpses in the Old Testament that point to Christ. Carson also says Jesus has come to fulfill the Old Testament scriptures in a rich diversity of ways. I assume since Jeremiah, you started Leviticus today, right? Yep. Uh, Unfortunately, I wasn't able to be there, but 
one of the things we see in Leviticus is that all of these sacrifices, the festivals, the priesthood, everything in this book points to the person and work of Christ, and Jesus accomplishes all that they promise. So one of the way I know that the book of Leviticus typically is the place where uh, reading through the Bible in a year is shipwrecked uh, because <laughs> we look at that and we go, I haven't got the foggiest what it's talking about. Most people talk about the sacrifices. That to me is a breeze, but it's when you get to those three chapters of like, it seems like 500 verses talking about leprosy and how to cleanse your house from leprosy, that boggles my mind. But one of the ways we we get through that is Leviticus isn't just pointing out past information about some ritualistic things Jews did a long time ago. It's pointing to Jesus. All these sacrifices are, are fulfilled in Christ. All, all that the priests point to are fulfilled in Christ. These things about leprosy, we, we see Jesus healing lepers. That, that makes reading those chapters a little more interesting because it's pointing to Christ and his work. It helps us understand what sin is and those kind of things. So all of the Old Testament points to Jesus Christ. Jesus says of the Old Testament in Luke chapter 24, these, speaking of the Old Testament scriptures, testify of me. And it's not just things like sacrifices and and priests that point to Jesus, but even people in the Old Testament point to Jesus. For example, Jeremiah just uh, was recently teaching on Genesis, and we studied for just a little bit the life of Joseph. The life Joseph was hated by his brothers, given up for dead, uh, sold into Egypt, and and because of J- uh, because of Joseph's suffering, he was able to save many people alive. We say, see this exact kind of thing happening in the life of Christ. Christ was hated by his own brothers, his own people, and given up for dead. And yet, through his suffering, many are saved. Time and time again, you find things like this in the Old Testament. Um, one of the last year, instead of reading through the Bible in a year, I read through the Psalms twice, very slowly. And one of the things I did was I would try to read the Psalms as if it was referring to Christ, because they are. And it's amazing how the Psalms unfold when and the insight it gives you into Christ and his suffering and, and his work when you read the Psalms in that way. That's why Jesus says all of the Old Testament points to him. They, it all speaks to him. So one of the uses of the Old Testament is that it points to Jesus. And so we absolutely should read, study, and preach from it, all the while asking, How does the text point to Jesus? Does it teach us who he is or what he did? We should also trust in the Savior to whom it points. The the prophecies in the Old Testament, the predictions, are evidence that the Bible is the word of God. They're evidence of 
who that Jesus is who he said he is. They're evidence that we should believe what he says. It's evidence that we should trust in the dying and risen Savior to take away sins. We should believe the gospel that he preached, that through his death and his endless life, anyone who believes can be saved. The same Christ preached in the New Testament is the same Christ that's preached in the Old. And we would do well to believe in him. So the Old Testament scriptures point to Christ. The Old Testament scriptures are also useful because they are God's indestructible word. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 18 especially, but I'll also read verse 19 again. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teach others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is promising us here that God's word, God's story of redemption, will not come to an end with some of its parts unaccomplished. Have you ever read a book where it ends with a cliffhanger ending and there's no sequel? It's aggravating. (laughs) John Grisham had a book like that called uh, The Partner. Uh, they, this couple works together to rob people of money, and their plan is to meet at this beach at the end, and then they'd go live in another country, of course, where there's no extradition, and they'd live together happily ever after. Well, she betrays him and takes the money and disappears, and the end of the book is him standing on the beach, and you're wondering... And he's wondering, will he ever see her again? Did she get caught? What happened? And you never know. I'm still mad about it, and I read that book a long time ago. God's story is not going to end that way. In God's story, at the end of time, all of his promised blessings and cursings will be meted out. All the prophecies will be fulfilled to the smallest detail. That's the idea when he says iota or dot. Iota is a very small letter in the Greek alphabet. And and you know what a dot is. Jesus is saying every tiny detail of God's word is going to be completely and perfectly accomplished, and it will not be destroyed until all of it's accomplished. This is why... The psalmist says of God's word, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. This is why Isaiah can say, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Because God's word is indestructible, it is then a serious error to annul the Old Testament and obedience to it will be rewarded. Now, this warning in verse 19, that whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, this warning implicates the Pharisees and the scribes. 
because the traditions of the Pharisees often conflicted with God's word. One of the ones that Jesus points out to them is the rule of Corban. Uh, the idea was that you were required to take care of your parents when they were older, and you were required as a Jewish person to put the money aside to care for your parents. How it, under the command, honor your mother and father, you know, one of the Ten Commandments. You were, you were supposed to care for your parents, and this is a way to fulfill that. However, there was a loophole. You could set aside that money and say it was given to God, and then you don't have to take care of your parents. So they, they, they made it sound really spiritual, right? You're giving all this money to God. But it's not spiritual to give all this money to God and abandon your parents to poverty when they need you. It was undermining the commandment, honor your father and mother. But they were upholding their traditions. Jesus roundly criticized this tradition that undermined God's plain teaching, a, a specific command of God's word. It would be nice if the Pharisees and the scribes and their ideas had died out in, the, in those early centuries, but sadly they live on. Christian denominations do things that have traditions that sinfully undermine God's word. One of, I know you guys won't be offended with this, but some of our Baptist friends, um, at the end of every service, they have an altar call. And everybody who feels, at first it always starts out, if you need Jesus, come. Uh, but then, of course, if nobody comes, then we got to guilt lots of people into coming. Um, one of, the, one of the things that the altar call has done is undermine the Lord's Supper and baptism. It, it, it decreased their value. Because in those churches that practice the altar call, they, your profession of faith comes when you come forward. Your repentance comes when you come forward. But the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible actually teaches that our profession of faith is in our baptism, our Repentance comes when we comes, come to the Lord's table. And so while the altar call may be well-intentioned, and I, I think it is, it undermines what God says we ought to do. And we, we've, I'm not trying to pick on people that are outside here. Um, I'm sure we have tra traditions that do this as well, and we, we would do well to root them out and hold tight, more tightly to the scriptures than we do our own traditions. Um, this, is, this is a warning we as believers in Christ, we as a church, ought to take seriously. We can undermine God's word by holding on to our traditions. This warning implicates Pharisees, but it also is for Jesus' disciples. Okay? The issue here isn't simply violating God's commands, the Jews already knew it was wrong to disobey God's commands. Wouldn't have had any argument with them about that. The issue is violating the commandment and encouraging others to do so. You can encourage people uh, to violate the command of God, violate the Old Testament scriptures, violate the word of God by your example, and that's often where it's most deadly, or you can teach them, by precept. 
When someone who names the name of Christ continues in impenitent and willful sin, public sin that everyone knows about, this encourages people to believe that if you're a Christian, you don't have to follow God's moral law. The Apostle Peter was guilty of this. You can read of it in the book of Galatians. When he separated himself from the Gentiles when the Jews came, and Paul had to rebuke him publicly to his face for his sin. He was, because, the, because of his stature, the Apostle Peter, by his behavior, wasn't as if he got up and preached a message and said, this is what we ought to do. He probably wouldn't have done that. But his example showed them, this is what faithful Christians do. It's, by the way, is one of the reasons why church discipline is an important thing to do. Because if we, if we allow sin to continue in the church and ignore it and it festers, people outside will say, well, you must be able to do that if you're a faithful Christian. Our examples can undermine God's word. Our example can encourage people to ignore God's word. We also know it can be done by precept as well. I already mentioned Charles, not Charles Stanley, but his son, Andy Stanley, um, and how he says we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. But traditions, theological systems, they may encourage violating God's commands. And Jesus is warning us here. This is a serious warning. I'm reading the book of Jeremiah because I I read through the Bible in a year, and I just finished the book of Jeremiah. And one of the things that again and again is happening in that book is God persistently sends the prophets, and the people just as persistently ignore the word of God. And God wreaked havoc on his own people. Many people suffered being taken to Babylon. They suffered when the nation crumbled. Many people suffered because these folks, God's people refused to obey God's word. Now, I don't think Jesus is threatening here that you lose your salvation, but it's still a serious warning nonetheless. Destroyed lives, destroyed testimonies, bringing shame to your God, our God. This is a serious warning that we need need to be aware of that should encourage us to follow God's command, to listen to the Old Testament scriptures. Now, if all of this that I've said is true, that Jesus came to fulfill the Old Testament if he's not abolishing it, then why is it that we don't offer sacrifices? Why don't we practice circumcision? Why don't we keep a Saturday Sabbath or follow the Old Testament food laws? The best answer, I think, is that Jesus came to fulfill these Old Testament signs. So God's word is being fulfilled in Christ. They've come to an end in the sense, in a sense, for us, we don't practice them, but 
Has sacrifice gone away? Yeah, we don't kill goats and sheep and things like that. But our sacrifice is in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us and for our sins. Have we done away with circumcision? Yes, the physical cutting away of the flesh, but the Spirit still circumcises the hearts of the believers when they're converted. Do we... The Sabbath is a more difficult question, but the Saturday Sabbath, the Jewish Sabbath, that pointed to rest from our works. Have we given that up? No, we rest in Christ and what he's done for us. So when I say they're fulfilled in Christ and and they're, they're ending, they're... Having trouble even explaining it. It's it's not here physically that we see the physical sense it's done away with, but in the spiritual sense, this is ongoing. The reason we don't sacrifice anymore is because the once for all sacrifice has been given. It's not that we don't need sacrifices anymore, it's that we have an all-sufficient sacrifice for us. It's not that we don't need circumcision anymore, it's that we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us and circumcising our hearts. Now, it's all well and good to say this about the ceremonial law, but didn't Jesus also fulfill the moral law? Now, I think this is a complicated question as well, um, but one of the things that's helpful is the, uh, the, the Protestants, the Reformed, uh, our confessions, they, they explain uh, three uses of the law, okay? The third use of the law uh, is is to be our guide. Calvin actually calls it a whip, but I think that's overly harsh, so I'm going to call it a guide. So the third use of the law, traditionally, from Protestant understanding, is that we, the moral law of God, summarized in the Ten Commandments, and more briefly summarized in the two great commandments, this is the moral law of God. These are guides for righteous living. They teach us what it is to be righteous. They teach us what it means to be godly, and we need that kind of guide. But on the other hand, we are free from the moral law in the sense that we're no longer condemned by it if we fail to keep it. We've we've obtained through Christ and faith in him forgiveness for our sins. In addition, the Spirit has transformed the heart of believers so that the moral law is no longer a burden, but a delight. So, brothers and sisters, these Old Testament scriptures, they're indestructible. They continue to be useful to us. They point to Christ. They, po- they show us God's indestructible word. And finally, the Old Testament scriptures are useful because they point to a great righteousness. Listen to what Jesus says at the very end of this passage in verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The Old Testament scriptures, again, are useful because they point to a great righteousness. 
up to this point, all that Jesus has been saying, most likely the crowd would be agreeing with him. He's not really said anything that would be all that controversial to a Jewish audience, especially because he's making a strong statement about the continuing validity of the Old Testament scriptures. But in this verse, Jesus starts meddling. This pronouncement that you have to have a righteousness greater than uh, scribes and Pharisees would have been shocking on many levels. First of all, just being a Jew, it would be shocking because they can't. They think because they're descendants of Abraham that they can't possibly be shut out of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Secondly, it would be shocking because the Pharisees and scribes were considered to be the personification of righteousness in the, their day. To have a greater righteousness than these guys would have been considered nearly impossible. Jesus is showing that this external righteousness of the Pharisees and Sadducees is only that, external. It's why Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. He called them serpents. He called them vipers. Because what they are on the outside, they look like the epitome of righteousness, but in the inside, they were not. I think Jesus here is... I know this is an anachronism, but Jesus is using the first use of the law, that of a mirror. So there, there's the third use is the, the law is a guide. The first use of the law is that it's a mirror. It reflects who we really are. It shows us our sins. And it's not one of those mirrors like when you take a selfie and you have all the filters so you can pretty yourself up and look like a bunny if you want to, and everybody thinks you're so cute. It's not one of those mirrors. It's one of those mirrors that shows you in in all, all your defects, all your warts, all your ugliness and hideousness before God because of your sins. That's what the law does to us. This is what Jesus is trying, I think, to get across to this audience, not just here, but he's about to preach a sermon on the law and really uncover their external righteousness and show them that they're rottenness on the inside. He's going, he's about to preach a sermon where he will show them in a mirror what they really look like to God. That they really haven't fulfilled the law. That they haven't followed God. This is one of the uses of law, not just for unbelievers, but for believers as well. Because we have no righteousness of our own. Our righteousness is found in Christ. And when we look at that mirror of the law and we see ourselves for who we truly are, it causes us to flee for, to Christ and find mercy in him again and again. If you read through the Ten Commandments and feel comfortable or read through the Sermon on the Mount, especially the verses following what I'm reading today, and feel comfortable, you're reading them wrong. You need to go back and try again. These, these, the Ten Commandments, the, this passage after what I'm reading in the Sermon on the Mount ought to make you feel uncomfortable. It ought to bring shame 
Jesus doesn't want to leave us there in our shame. But this shame is the road to repentance. This shame is one of the paths on the road to mercy found in Christ. Unbelievers need to know this so that they'll flee to Christ for the first time and be converted. You can't, you cannot obtain the righteousness that Jesus proclaims here. In fact, in verse 48 of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, therefore, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the standard. If you don't measure up to that, if your righteousness doesn't match the perfection of God, you will fall short. You need Christ and his righteousness. Only his righteousness is the perfect righteousness that will access heaven and eternal life. Believers need it too because we we tend to become self-righteous. We check off the Ten Commandments and pat ourselves on the back and say, I'm doing pretty well. No, we need to be reminded again and again that we fall short. Not so that we feel miserable about ourselves, but so that we'll find comfort in Christ. So that we'll find joy in the good news of the gospel. And then as we find that comfort in Christ and the joy in the gospel, knowing Christ's mercy will fill us with such gratitude that we'll willingly and happily be in obedience to God's law. This is the way to avoid legalism. So Jesus would have us to respond to God's greater righteousness that is being pointed out in the law. Jesus would have his true disciples repent of their unrighteousness, turn to him for mercy, and gratefully, with God's help, obey Jesus' teaching. So how valuable, then, is the Old Testament? In one place in the Bible, Jesus says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. If you refuse to hear the Old Testament scriptures, you won't listen to Jesus. You won't listen to the Lord who's been risen, regardless of his miracles. Brothers and sisters, the Old Testament scriptures are useful for us. They're valuable for believers today. For many reasons, I've just given you three, that they point to Jesus Christ. They are God's indestructible word, and they reveal a great righteousness. My prayer is that you begin or continue to treasure all of God's indestructible word, that it indeed, with the help of the Spirit, will lead to repentance, faith, and grateful obedience. Let's pray. Again, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for all of it. We, we, Christ has shown us its value. I pray that as believers in Christ, we will treasure your word. That, that you would give us hearts that are ready and willing to obey. 
that when your word is preached, when your word is read, when your word is studied, that we wouldn't be just hearers, but doers of your word as well. Dear Lord, I pray today that you would use your word in the hands of your mighty spirit to convert sinners to faith in Christ. And we pray it in Jesus' name.